Welcome to HeyYA Extra Credit. Every other week, opposite the main HeyYA podcast, we'll bring you a short-form podcast either as a book club discussion with a beloved YA author or look at two or three or four excellent backlist YA books for your TBR. I'm Kelly Jensen. On today's episode, I'll be chatting with Tiffany Schmidt, author of the recently released Get a Clue, the fourth and final book in her Bookish Boyfriend series. And we're going to talk about the backlist gem, Rain Is Not My Indian Name by Cynthia Lighting-Smith, which is being re-released this week and is a 20-year-old book. So it's really interesting to revisit it now and see the updates. And we're going to talk about that as well as all things younger YA books. So with that, I would like to turn it over to Tiffany to introduce who you are and talk a little bit about your books. Hi, Kelly. Hi. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. My name is Tiffany Schmidt. I am the author of, most recently, the Bookish Boyfriend series, which are four younger young adult novels about freshmen and sophomores at a school in which they have a teacher. Her name is Mrs. Gregoire. And I like to describe her as a version of Miss Rizzle from the Magic School Bus who teaches high school English instead of elementary school science. <laughs> and that the book she assigns to her students start to bleed into their personal lives. So, you know, throughout the series, we've got Pride and Prejudice and Romeo and Juliet in A Date with Darcy. The second book is called A Boy Next Story or The Boy Next Story. And it is Little Women Meets Great Gatsby. Talk Nerdy to Me is Anne of Green Gables and Frankenstein, is set in a STEM-centered um, narrative. And then the most recent, Get a Clue, is a queer take on Sherlock Holmes, in which our main character, Huck, is assigned to read Sherlock Holmes. At the same time, there's a mystery happening in the life of his crush, Winston. So I love these books. They're so clever and creative. And I also love that they are paperback originals. So I I think about that a lot in terms of like who the book is sold for. I don't remember where I read this or heard this, but a long, long time ago, I had heard that the hardcovers are really for like libraries and schools. And that's part of like why they're released so far ahead of time. And then the paperbacks are really geared toward the bookstore buyers. And so I always think when a paperback is just a paperback original, it's directly for that reader. And in this case, it's for that, you know, eighth grader, that ninth grader, that 10th grader who's like, I need a good book. And this series, like you get four of them. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I agree. And it's been great. You know, it's it's half the price and it's something that Mm -hmm. you can throw in your bag and isn't going to take up as much room. That being said, it's interesting because I would say about half my emails for these books are from you know teen readers, and the other half is from teachers mm-hmm. uh, who are who have read it and loved it, and are putting copies in their classroom libraries. So I'm like, I hope they they put that book tape on the spine. I hope it holds <laughs> up. But I really love hearing that too. And I think one of my favorite pieces of feedback from the readers is how many of them have read one of these books, and then because of it felt like they were then able to go approach the classic. Yes. So because they had read The Boy Next Story, they were then picking up Little Women. You know, Mm -hmm. they're like, I've seen the movie, I've read the book, now I feel like I can tackle this. Or because they had read A Date with Darcy, they were then checking out Pride and Prejudice. And that's just been really fulfilling because the books I've chosen as my classics were some of my favorite. So anytime anyone's like, I read Anne of Green Gables because I read Talk Nerdy to me, I'm like, Yes, my my purpose in life has been fulfilled, <laughs> especially as a former teacher. Yeah, I was going to say, you're a former teacher, so you know, too, like the approachable ways to get kids to read a wider range of stories, whether it's classics or just something that maybe they felt they weren't ready for or weren't interested in. Like, do you want to talk a bit about like where this idea to pull the classics into this series came from? Sure. And I I think that's really true that like idea of what can they approach and what feels accessible to them. I had tried when I was teaching sixth grade, doing a wrinkle in time as a read aloud one year and it it went okay. You know, the kids liked it. But then the next year I paired When You Reach Me, which I read first with Wrinkle in Time, which we started parallel. And that year, when we finished A Wrinkle in Time, I had to order every copy of A Swiftly Talented Planet in the whole district (laughs) to be sent to my classroom. Because, you know, from all of the schools, we had like 14 elementary schools, and I had to go to every librarian and be like, send me your copies, because every kid in my room wants to read it. 
And it was just such a change. It had become something they related to in a different way. And so that idea has always kind of stuck with me. And Kelly, you were actually one of the first people I talked to about this series. And I think I remember I mentioned in the the arc letter uh, for A Date with Darcy, this email I, I wrote you, and it now has to be like seven or eight years ago. Oh my goodness, something like um, that, yeah. Where I was like, does this exist? Uh, does this book exist where there's a modern heroine who interacts in some way with modern versions of these classic heroes? And you were like, let me ask some of my librarian friends. And you were like, no, everyone's saying no. But at the time I was you know, locked into working on a different series. So it was an idea I had to put aside. And the first time I really started working on it was I'd had my tonsils out. Um, which is the worst. Uh, you know, I, I've had children, this is far worse than that. But I was so drugged up that I wouldn't let myself use my computer for the 14 day recovery. <laughs> and so I only wrote a notebook and I filled an entire notebook with notes for the series. And sometimes my handwriting went, you know, sideways. You could tell like when I had retaken pain medication. <laughs> But it was just an idea I couldn't let go of. I think it so resonated who, with who I was as a young reader, where I built so much of my ideas about what romance was from these books I were reading. And I was a classics reader. And then I didn't understand why the boys in my middle school and high school didn't act like that. <laughs> I was very much a person who thought Romeo and Juliet was a romance the first time I read it in eighth grade and then didn't read it again, you know, and then of course the Leo movie came out, which did not help that situation. <laughs> but I remember reading it again in a college Shakespeare class and literally being like, okay, who changed Shakespeare? Because the story I read, you know, when I was 13 was a romance and now it's very much not. Mm -hmm. And the idea of being able to explore that the same with the great Gatsby. I remember thinking it was incredibly romantic that both of these men um, were obsessed with Daisy and then having to re-grapple with that text as an adult with different perspective. So playing with that idea in fiction has been really interesting and, you know, being able to kind of have these characters have these revelations or analyze this text in ways that are relevant to their own lives. Yeah. And I think it just, I think kids are curious about these stories. They hear them all the time if they haven't experienced them firsthand. And it's like when they can then read a character who is also experiencing them in some way, suddenly it is something that they're even more interested in and feel confident like, okay, you know, this character in this book I just read had this experience, like, let me see what my experience will be with the same story. And a lot of the experiences are universal. I know Frankenstein and Anne of Green Gables feels like an odd pairing for a book, but they are both stories of outsiders. Mm -hmm. And Eliza, the main character of that book, feels that way. You know, mm -hmm. she has parents who are scientists who are in Antarctica, and they're kind of parenting by proxy via all this data they make her record about herself and these rules they make her live by. And she feels very much like an experiment. Um, and she doesn't feel always wanted or welcomed. And those are experiences that are both had by Frankenstein's monster and Anne from Anne of Green Gables. So even though some of the language may be harder to access, or some of the experiences in the classics are very different, there is this commonality. There are these overarching experiences and emotions that are so universal. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that like leads really nicely into this book that we're going to talk about. And before we get to that discussion, I'm going to hit our sponsor, which is This Is Not The Jess Show by Anna Carey. The year is 1998, and like any other teenager, Jess Flynn is just trying to survive high school. Between a crush on her childhood best friend, overprotective parents, and her sister's worsening health, the only constant is her hometown of Swickley, until the day she discovers a mysterious device causing her to question everything she's known. As more cracks appear in Jess's world, she faces a choice. Can she live the rest of her life knowing it's a lie, or should she risk everything for the truth? Thank you to This Is Not The Just Show by Anna Carey. We are going to dive into discussing Rain Is Not My Indian Name by Cynthia Lighting Smith. Like I had mentioned before, this one is being re-released with a new cover and some updated material. It comes out February 9th. So by the time you listen to this show, it'll be out. And it was originally published, I want to say in 2001. I think it's 20 years old this year. And... Do you want to give like a short synopsis? Obviously, there will be spoilers as we talk about this book. It's a 20-year-old book. So 
if that's a thing that you would prefer not to hear, read the book. It's short. It's like 150 pages. And then tune in. Otherwise, just listen along. So I enjoyed this book so much. Rain is our protagonist. And the book deals a lot with grief and identity and friendship influx and family dynamics. And I'm sure we'll get into a lot of that. But it opens on New Year's Eve, which is the day before her birthday. And she and her best friend, Galen, are, you know, kind of sneaking around town, not even sneaking, they're just running through town to get to this playground, where they are sitting on the swings, and she's hoping for her first kiss, her feelings towards Galen have started to change. And she's thinking that she might be ready to do something about that. And Galen is this fully realized character just in that open first chapter. And he's so charming. And I was so engaged with him right away. So it was a gut punch in chapter two, when she wakes up on her birthday morning to a phone call that Galen has passed away, that there was an accident in the two blocks between where he left her and him reaching his home. And he never made it home that night. And then the narrative jumped six months. And it was, I I don't know how you felt, Kelly, but it was such a gut punch to me that I had to like put it down and back away yeah, um, and kind of absorb that. And, you know, another time I remember feeling like that was um, Sarah Offler's 20 Boy Summer, because both of them manage in that opening space to create a character who feels so real and so fully realized that you feel their death immediately, even though you haven't spent a lot of page time with them. Yeah, I, I was really surprised that that happened in chapter two. I was like, I was expecting with the setup that we got that this would be a story of Rain finally getting this boyfriend, this best friend that she'd had for so long. And, you know, finally sort of being able to realize those feelings and to wake up to chapter two where he's died. Like all of a sudden it was, it was, it made me pause and be like, Ooh, okay. This book is not going to be what I think it is. Um, And I, as a reader, really appreciated that. I thought it was incredibly impactful because to a degree, I mean, obviously not, and obviously Rain's fictional, but it felt like we were experiencing some of the same abruptness of loss that she was feeling. Mm -hmm. Um, It wasn't this like, oh, he was sick or, oh, this happened. It was so abrupt and I was taken so back. And the fact that she is feeling that way, you know, this person that was very much alive when she left him just a few hours earlier and has been gone. And since so much of the book is her kind of struggling with that, you know, the narrative then jumps six months. Um, We know that she doesn't go to his funeral. She doesn't return his mom's phone calls. She kind of retreats into herself for the next six months, doesn't practice photography, which had been a huge hobby, a huge part of her identity, and kind of closes herself in. And the book is about six months later, when she starts to kind of engage with the world again, and gets thrown into this conflict about her aunt um, running what is called Indian camp in their town, which is a place where Native peoples can get together and do some learning about their heritage and also some team building. But Galen's mom objects to the town giving any funds towards it. And Rain gets pulled into the middle of that dynamic. I, yeah, (laughs) you know, I was like, okay, I love the six-month span where we don't really know what happens. And then we are taken right back into Rain starting to come back to putting her life together. And that six months is kind of important because we know at the very beginning that Rain's birthday is on New Year's Day. And then we learn that Galen's birthday is July 4th. So that six month period sort of gives that like, okay, it's almost his birthday. Mm -hmm. And we know that this is like very important in their friendship because both of them felt like their birthdays being on these holidays meant that they didn't get something special all their own. Mm -hmm. Um, So they always made it special for each other. And so when it picks up and she, Rain decides not to go to Indian camp, which is the name they use in the book. She takes this assignment from her soon-to-be sister-in-law to help take photos of this camp and to help with an article and talking about like why this camp is important because Galen's mom had written an editorial in the paper about how it wasn't appropriate to use community funds to fund this program that only a small percentage of people would ever attend. And 
in that moment, as I was reading, I was like, this is such a fascinating look at how people handle grief in that rain really retreats. And we know that both because we don't get that six months of story, but also just in how she is tentative about doing anything. And then we have Galen's mom, who has become just this outspoken, very cantankerous, I guess is a good Mm -hmm. word to use, person who is like trying to take away everybody's joy in some capacity because it gives her a sense of control, I think. is I don't think it's cruel. I think it's just like it gives her this sense of control. And as we learn later, there's there's another reason behind it. But yeah, she's looking for purpose. I mean, she had run for mayor. We learn she had run for mayor in that six that six months, I believe, and lost and is just searching for something to fight against because she Mm -hmm. can't. You know, Galen was her only son. There's not a Mr. Owens mentioned anywhere in. So it seems like she's a person very isolated who doesn't have much else. Right. And as we learn later on in the story, at the very beginning, we learn that there was this incident between Galen and his girlfriend at the time. And Galen had told Rain that like their relationship ended. And then it turns out maybe it didn't end or it didn't end the way that he portrayed it to end. Mm -hmm. And so then there's this interesting moment of because this was an accident when he died, his mother is looking for some way to create a narrative about what happened. And part of that narrative is this relationship like what really happened and who's really the the bad person here when the reality is nobody's the bad person here right it's yeah it's nonsense you know and she needs someone to blame and since rain you know we we know that mrs owens called rain several times over the course you know it's something like she called her twice the day he died she called him once the next day she called him three times the day before his memorial service and rain won't answer any of it And Rain is the only person in town who doesn't show up for his funeral. So the narrative about what happened on his last night gets built without her. Mm -hmm. And so the role she plays in that narrative is something she's not even aware of until, you know, six months later, uh, because she doesn't know how the gaps got filled in or who in the small town saw what or told what lie or, you know, she knows that his ex-girlfriend, who is also her ex second best friend read a poem at the funeral but she doesn't know what that poem says she Mm -hmm. just knows you know and she comes to learn the narrative that has been built in the absence of her voice isn't accurate and you know doesn't really know what to do about that because there's no one to counter it you know Galen's not there and there's this interesting dynamic too we haven't even talked about this is a small town Mm -hmm. so a lot of the politics of the small town here really come to play in what happened which is why everybody seems to kind of know what happened and everybody seems to sort of you know quote unquote know how mrs owens behaves and really it's such a fascinating look at small town politics Mm -hmm. and small town life and just the ways that people interact with one another when, right. you know, you can't get away from something. Right. And there's also, you know, a lot of racial dynamics in the town. Mm-hmm. You know, Galen asks her at one point, you know, would you ever date a black person? You know, because he is dating her second best friend, her ex-second best friend, who is black. Mm-hmm. And one, of, I think one of the most striking moments in the text to me is this editorial letter that Mrs. Owens writes to the town newspaper objecting to the funding of Indian camp includes the line, the only local Native American child who's an honor roll student, you know, won't be participating. So the idea that she's kept account, you know, and they all mm-hmm. have, you know, Rain is very aware of exactly how many Native students are in town, or how many Native people. But even the idea that, like, it's not just that she's quantified them, but also assigned this value to it. The fact that Rain mm-hmm. is the only Native American child who's an honor roll student. You know, the fact that Mrs. Owen knows it to that minutia mm-hmm. and that that has value is fascinating. And that interplays through the whole narrative is, you know, who has worth and how do you value their worth and what are you judged for? And this comes up to 
to play out when Rain goes to document the Indian camp for the first time and Mm -hmm. sees her second ex-best friend is attending and Mm -hmm. sees that this is a camp that is about education and connection and really sort of honing your own voice. And that was one of the themes I kind of was drawing through this whole thing because Rain has been so she stepped so far back that Mm -hmm. she is not taking part in something, but viewing it as an outsider. And the way that that plays in with the photography aspect is genius in that she's documenting as opposed to being a part of it. And the more that she sort of sees what's going on at this camp, that it's not what she thought it would be, that it really is for all kids to just learn and to connect with one another. Mm -hmm. And she suddenly realizes like, wait a minute, you know, I'm not just this perceived idea somebody has of me or that I even have of myself. Like I can be, and I am so much more than that. Right. There's this genius moment where, you know, Rain is very much filtering everything through her camera and she's talking about how she's framing her shots and how they need to tell a story and there's this genius and she's getting more and more pulled into the drama of the Indian camp. The line between participant and observer is starting to blur. She's partnered with a reporter named Flash. And, you know, he's like, I I can't eat any food that's offered to me. You know, that's Mm -hmm. part of my objectivity. And Rain's like, give me the soup. (laughs) There's this moment where she's watching them build this pasta bridge and she's really getting into it, even though she's not building it. But that line is being blurred. She's starting to engage with them more. The conversations are happening. Conversations are getting heated. And she turns to storm out and her camera strap catches. And as it's swinging back, it hits the bridge, smashes the bridge, and the camera also falls and gets broken. And it's this amazing symbolic moment of the thing that she's using to keep herself at a distance is broken at the same moment she Mm -hmm. becomes this active part of the camp you know she can no longer consider herself an outsider she is now in the camp and that thing that she was using to keep herself as a distance that lens isn't available to her anymore she can't hide behind it because it's literally broken right and this is the moment where if i remember incorrectly she and the second ex-best friend have a moment together and Mm -hmm. it's where she suddenly is this active participant and by like trying to make up, you know, to yeah. to these campers, like how do you fix this project that they've been working on for so long? And suddenly she is reconnecting with uh, her former friend and learning that, you know, it's more than being an outside observer. Like she has to actually be part of the process to understand both why it was so important and also like how she can contribute to making it strong again. It's also a moment where she starts to realize what's being said about her and that maybe everything she thought was true isn't true, Um, including the reason this friend is her ex-best friend, Mm -hmm. because that was her choice. You know, there's this amazing moment in the narrative from, you know, their part of the narrative is these pieces from her old journals, where after she thinks, you know, the ex-best friend, or ex-second best friend, Queenie has broken up with Galen you know, Queenie greets her at school the next day and she's literally like, take your notebooks, take your tampons, take everything out of my locker. You need to go find someone else to share your locker with. Mm -hmm. And in her mind, it's this moment of loyalty to Galen, but she doesn't know the full story. And that, you know, Queenie has a very different interpretation of how and why they broke up. Yep. (laughs) It's just the dynamics in this small town, this di- the dynamics between these, and, and I should, I don't know if we mentioned this, they're 14, so they're young, yeah. are just so real. Mm-hmm. They're so real. And I, I like to think a lot about high stakes and low stakes when it comes to storytelling. And I think too often we forget, particularly when it's a contemporary story, that for the teen in the story, they don't have to save the world for something to be high stakes. And in this case, it's like she's lost this boy that she's been friends with for forever, who she had a crush on, but she's also lost this person who was so close to her. And yeah. these things happening at the same time and and being connected with one another just has been 
such high stakes for her and particularly mm-hmm. in a community where you know everybody knows everything about you or thinks yeah. they know everything about you yeah and it's a time where friendships are in flux anyway you know mm-hmm. i think that that 14 and 13 are really an age where friendships are changing because people are changing you know because puberty is happening and because your world is getting bigger Mm-hmm. elementary school is so much more controlled but as you get older and you have choices in your classes and just more activities and avenues for self-exploration open up friendships do naturally change and there's this great moment from her journal where she says with the best friend there's a commitment a second best friend is trickier a second best friend knows you and most of your secrets and you know her and most of hers and knowing all of that both of you decide the friendship is only second best Mm-hmm. And I was like, that is so accurate, you know, for that time period and the idea yes. of needing to have this order and there being this power dynamics. As an adult, I can't ever imagine sitting down and doing like friendship calculus to mm-hmm. decide, okay, you're second best. But that is so authentic to that time. And, you know, I'm the parent of two 10 year olds and I, I hear them start to do some of that sometimes. But especially for teenage girls, this is such an accurate depiction of that time. Right. And I keep thinking through this, like she's, she's working through this, but also like the grief she is dealing with, because it's not just Galen, she lost her mother too. And so the family dynamics at home are much different than say your typical, you know, suburban family. What gets depicted, yeah. What gets depicted, yeah, what people think that is. And um, so she's also in this very interesting place where her brother, who is quite a bit older than her, mm-hmm. they live together and he is in a relationship with this girl. He's been in a relationship with her for a long time. She is white, if I'm remembering correctly, mm-hmm. um, because that interracial intercultural relationship is something that Rain thinks about again because of that conversation with Galen earlier Mm -hmm. about dating somebody outside your race or background. And she and her brother get along really well, but there are still secrets in this family. And as those slowly come out, it's like world changing for Mm -hmm. Rain. Yeah. Um, Yeah. There's a moment where Natalie says to Rain, like, you need to talk to your brother. And Rain's like, no, my brother needs to talk to me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it just feels so authentic to that time period of like the power dynamic. But it's also, you know, Natalie, his girlfriend, I don't think they've been together that long. I think it's only a couple of months that they had been together. Well, I guess it's about six months when the book opens, because I want to say that they said she moved in in December, you know, and the book opens. I think you're right. Yeah. And Natalie's new to town and she comes from like a country club background, but now she dresses all, you know, kind of hip. She wears overalls. She has one earring. She's a vegetarian, (laughs) you know, which feels, and she's the only vegetarian in town. So she feels like this rebel. And at the same time, her brother, Finn, who Rain talks about, he looks much more native than her. He looks much Mm -hmm. more like the stereotype of what people expect a Native American to look like. But he, in that same period of time, has kind of reversed trajectory where he all of a sudden is in pinstripe suits. He's cut Mm -hmm. his long hair. He doesn't wear the jeans and the things he used to do. So, you know, Natalie and Finn are kind of on this reverse trajectory in the way they're portraying themselves to the world. So there's a lot of complicated dynamics going on there. And uh, Rain's dad is military and he's stationed in Guam. Um, mm-hmm. So their relationship takes place over phone calls. And there's a grandfather, but he, for the, the duration of the trip, is off on a gambling trip to Vegas mm-hmm. or for the duration <laughs> of the book. Yeah. So it's an interesting dynamic. It's not one that we see very often. Right. And I keep thinking, like, this was written 20 years ago. That was mm-hmm. awesome to think that that sort of. Um, dynamic, that family, which is very not what you typically see portrayed, was what was being seen. And then even now, 20 years later, seeing that, you're like, this is totally believable. And it has always been believable, but it's still so rare to see. Well, and I think what's so impressive about it is this is a short book. 
Mm-hmm. And all of these characters are so well-developed. I mentioned that with Galen, you know, that he's only on the page um, for a chapter and you know him. But all of these characters are. The dad in Guam, who we only meet through phone calls, and they're all complicated. And I think so often in fiction, the secondary characters aren't as well-developed. And mm-hmm. the fact that she does so, so effectively in such a short you know, narrative and makes them all so alive and so multifaceted and so complicated with issues of their own. They don't just exist to serve Rain and her narrative. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something to be said about books that are short and do this and leave so much unsaid for the reader yeah. to sort of fill in themselves. And I feel like we get these characters, we get these situations, we get this complexity. And yet there's so much that's just like, I'm not going to hand it to you as a reader. Mm -hmm. I'm going to trust that you understand this or that you take away something from this that is meaningful and important to you. And also the idea that like, again, you know, the target audience for this book is open to ambiguity Mm -hmm. in a way that maybe younger readers aren't. But the idea that not everything's wrapped up at the bow with a bow at the end like mm-hmm. Rain is really on the cusp of a lot of things. You know, will she repair this friendship? What will happen there? She realizes she's not going to have all the answers to what Galen did while he was alive because he's not here to ask. Even Flynn and, and Natalie, um, one of the things that happens is, you know, Flynn, Finn, I keep wanting to call him Flynn. Finn <laughs> says that he doesn't know if they'll get married. Their engagement has been put on pause. And that's where it ends. You know, there isn't Mm -hmm. that clear cut, this is the happily ever after that will happen. And those endings with torn edges, I feel like are so much more resonant, but that sometimes younger readers aren't as ready for them. You know, they need a, a more complete package, but that this age is open to that idea that things can linger and you can have questions Mm -hmm. and you can fill those in and life isn't as clean. Yeah. And I feel like that's a really good way to sort of transition into this topic that I think about all the time and that I see people talk about constantly. And that's YA for younger YA readers. And I feel like this particular book is such an outstanding example of, Mm -hmm. you know, you've got your 11, 12, 13, 14 year olds who want to read a book about somebody their age or slightly older, but they're not necessarily looking for that 17, 18 year old, which we see so frequently in YA. And it's because there is a world of difference between a 14 year old and a 17 year old. Like you wouldn't think that that, you know, three, four years makes a difference, but it really and truly does. Absolutely. And, you know, I think one of the the lines just to do one more uh, thing was that her dad says to her, you know, there's stuff happening at home and he's a phone call, you know, he's half a world away. And he says, but I guess you kids would have to fly solo some, even if I were there. And I think that is mm-hmm. the crux of this age period that mm-hmm. isn't the older YA and isn't middle grade. And that it's this time of like burgeoning autonomy where you're mm-hmm. given some permission, but you don't have a license. You know, right. you're not being told that you can run wild. You're not, you don't have all the freedoms of an older YA novel your parents are there or the adults in your life are there and they're supporting you, but they're starting to give you that space. And that's very different than what happens, you know, in middle grade. And it's also very different from upper YA. It's that space of like choice starting to open up and actions starting to have bigger consequences. At the same time, everything is changing in your body, in your life, in your friends' bodies and lives. And it's so easy to be completely wrapped up in yourself. So I really appreciate narratives like this one that give the other characters, you know, things happening in their lives that Mm -hmm. the protagonists have to deal with and recognize. I think because, you know, in middle grade, you start to see that a little bit. Mm -hmm. But still, so much of your world is literally like your world. You Mm -hmm. haven't quite been exposed to as much of other people's realities as you do when you start to exit middle grade, you know, when you start to get into that like seventh, eighth, ninth grade, where suddenly it's like you are exposed to this whole wide range of experiences. And that really makes you pause and start to 
think about your life in different ways and to think about your place in the world as well as like coming to realize things aren't as black and white as maybe you perceive them to be. Yes. And that other people's experiences are going to challenge yours and beliefs that you've held, things that you've believed about yourself, things that you've believed about the world. Um, You start to realize that the norms you've internalized because they're normal to your life aren't universal. Mm -hmm. And that's such an important moment of realization. And we need narratives that help students make those connections, but that meet them where they are. Right. And I think in this book, the um, Indian camp is such a perfect example. Rain doesn't want to do this. Like Mm -hmm. she is not interested. She doesn't want to hang out with her aunt. Like she doesn't want to spend this time that she thinks is going to be very like overly educational for her Mm -hmm. and good for her, you know, like taking her vitamins and the moment that somebody challenges this and she is observing how the camp actually is running. She's like, wait a minute here. Like Mm -hmm. my perceptions aren't correct. And also now I feel very protective of this thing. And, you know, I want to push back against what Mrs. Owens is saying or suggesting because I'm seeing something completely different. And then once she steps into it, it's she's experiencing something completely different. Yeah. I also think there's a moment with the reporter, she's paired with Flash, where, you know, she really has to face the fact that the world contains multitudes. And she's very aware of the ways that people stereotype her as a Native American or the things that they say to her and the questions she's annoyed with anger, like, annoyed by answering or the presumptions that they make about her. And then there's this moment where she finds out that Flash is Jewish. Mm -hmm. And she starts to say to him, well, you don't look or something to that effect and stops herself because she realizes that she's about to say to him something she judged him for saying to her about Mm -hmm. Native Americans. And it's this moment where like, you can just see her schemas, like her, her mental schemas start to shift to accommodate her worldview changing. And it's such a powerful moment. And I feel like this book and books that are written for this age group do such a phenomenal job of doing that and often do it in, you know, tight prose too, where it's like, you think about the writer writing it for that 13 year old who needs the story. Mm -hmm. And you see that 13 year old reading this experience internalizing what happens in the story and then pausing and being like, oh, that reminds me of, Mm -hmm. you know, this experience I have or this thing that I'm going through. And suddenly, like, what is unsaid becomes the loudest part of the story for them. Exactly. Yeah. And I think one of the hardest pieces of this category, you know, is you there are so many think pieces about how these books don't exist. And, you know, why are we not seeing these narratives? And they do. They're Mm -hmm. out there. It's just finding them. And I think one of the things that has been fascinating for me, having written the bookish series, is at events where if I'm interacting with a parent, the conversation is coded very different than if I'm interacting with a Mm -hmm. teen. Um, And Kelly, you and I have talked a little bit about this, this term clean teen. Yes. And how it makes my blood boil, but I also understand the why of why it exists. Mm -hmm. And clean teen being anything that doesn't include... And people may have various definitions, but typically it doesn't include drinking or drugs or sex or cursing. And so when you're interacting with a parent who may be shopping for a book for their 12, 13, or 14-year-old, they're trying to figure out a way to have that conversation without asking it. Um, yeah. And I've had parents come up and say, I bought this book or I bought that book and it had the award sticker on the front. And then all of a sudden my 12-year-old is coming to me and asking about you know, something that is sexual or above where their comfort level is. And they're like, I just don't know. You know, she's Mm -hmm. like, I can pick up three books that all have a girl silhouette on the front. And one of them is so beyond her. One of them's just right. And the other is this. And it's how do you differentiate? And how do you find the books for those readers who want to venture out of middle grade, but aren't quite sure where to land? I always find it interesting too. And what you said really struck me is that so often this label, we know what it means, but why doesn't it include violence? Yes. Yes. Like we as a society are okay with violence, but Mm -hmm. 
a young person coming to understand their sexuality or experiencing or seeing the experience of somebody with drugs or alcohol, like suddenly that is something that crosses a line Mm -hmm. from appropriate to inappropriate or uncomfortable. And I think that lands more on the parents than on the the kid, you know, who's living these realities. And so it's always fascinating um, because I used to get that question a lot in libraries about clean teen books or, Mm -hmm. you know, clean reads. And it's like, well, what is your definition of that? And, you know, I can't judge that for you. And I can't judge that for your kid. But I really want you to interrogate like what that means and like why you are so uncomfortable with that or why you won't have that conversation with your kid. Like coming through a book seems like the safest place for it to be happening. Right. Like why Hunger Games doesn't make you pause, but like Mm -hmm. looking for Alaska was incredibly scandalous. Yep. And I, I think that's, yeah, a very complex conversation. But it is hard because there isn't a label for books that go in this slot. You know, I think they've tried like tween, but no 14 year old wants to be referred to as a tween. Right. And, you know, it's just it's a tricky place to land and it can be, you know, a tricky place to publish. Um, I know that I've had from adults comments like, oh, this book is so young. It's not what I expected. And I'm like, okay, the the narrator's 14. They're acting Mm -hmm. 14. And I'm sorry, it wasn't the reading experience you expected, you know, picking up a YA book and expecting that 18 year old protagonist. But I also, again, I'm saying I hear a lot from teachers who are like, thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you for writing these. These are what I need in the classroom. And I know that when I was a teacher, that was a huge thing, you know, that my students loved uglies. Um, They loved Gallagher Girls, Alex Ryder. They wanted those narratives that Mm -hmm. crept up. Um, you know, Jordan Sonnenblick's like Drunk Girls, Dangerous Pie, like those things hit something in them that could be shelved in either place in a library. Right. And I, I can't help but think, too, that there's a similar challenge when it comes to YA nonfiction and that some of it, maybe a lot of it has to do with how these books are marketed. And if we're thinking about marketing books to adults versus marketing them to the kids themselves, like, Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's tricky in and of itself, but it's also how you sell it to the gatekeepers. How do you yeah. sell it to the librarians and the teachers who are desperately looking for these books for their mm-hmm. kids? And yet, like the sexiest books are the ones that get the attention, and those tend to be the ones that the adults are going to pick up off the shelf, which again, there's nothing wrong with that, but it means that this whole category of books that are really for teenagers and and older tweens, sort of get left behind. One of the things I have found really interesting, and this might be a slight, you know, detour, is even like what's on the cover and what's the Mm -hmm. title. You know, in some ways, I feel like my the bookish series is the perfect one to have in middle school and freshman English classes. But what I hadn't thought about when I was writing them is what would happen by including the word boyfriend in the Mm. title. And I know Shannon Hale talks a lot about this with her princess book. Mm-hmm. And how having the word princess in there has become a gate for some people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will never forget, I was at a book festival. Never when we had this. Yeah. <laughs> I, guess, I guess it was two falls ago now. And I was having this conversation with a freshman who had just read um, Romeo and Juliet. And so we were discussing a date with Darcy and Romeo and Juliet and processing that text. And her dad came over and literally, you know, put his hand on his shoulder and was like, I'm not buying you a book with the word boyfriend in the title. Oh. And like pulled her away. And I was like, we were just talking about Shakespeare. Right. But like the idea that that one word had become that gate, you know, mm-hmm. and you know, it was obviously just wasn't something that had occurred to me when I was writing this series. But the idea that like, there are these gates that we put up that prevent the books from getting into the right hands. Right. So are there teachers or schools that haven't put these copy, these books in their classroom library because they don't expect boys would read them or they're worried about the mm-hmm. universality? And you know, in the same way that Shannon Hale talks about having gone to a school and they took the boys out of the auditorium for a conversation on, I think, Princess Academy and just the idea that who is given these narratives? What are the, right. the obstacles that happen? And it's the adults. Mm -hmm. Like we're the ones to blame 
And it's because our preconceived notions are what we then put on our kids. And whether that's intentional or not, that that then builds this barrier in their minds as well. And so that's the perfect example is, you know, you and this kid are having this great conversation, but then it's a parent who comes in and says something without thinking through what that might mean or what that might say to that kid. And I think you're spot on. Like, it's so hard to get these books into the right hands to start with. And then we're also limited in like what what is going to be the magic phrase that makes mm-hmm. it clear that this is for any 14-year-old who wants a story about X or Y or Z? Sure. You know, and I don't have an answer, but it's just it's one of those things I think about a lot, particularly because I do see a lot of requests like where are the books for this age group? And it's like they're there. There mm-hmm. are so many of them and yet they don't get marketed or framed in a way that is especially helpful to the reader. Sure. In fact, in preparing for this podcast, I, I Googled that, you know, like books for 14 year olds. And, you know, the first hits I came up with were where are an article in school library journal about <laughs> like, where are these books? And then the second one was a lit agency article where it was called the problem with 14 year old protagonists. Oof. And the, the crux of the article was that essentially aspiring writers shouldn't write these books because they're tricky to sell in market. And I was like, that may be true, but the readers still exist. Right. You know, that category of human doesn't, you know, disappear because you don't know how to place these books in a bookstore. Right. Or because you don't know how to get them in the hands of the fifth and sixth grade teachers or Mm -hmm. librarians who work for that age group or sell it to the parents. You know, it's where are these seventh and eighth and ninth graders, you know, and where do you put it in the library and where does it go in a bookstore? And what makes this book get picked up and not that one. And absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's a marketing issue as so many of them are versus a like actual, these things exist issue. Mm-hmm. And there aren't words for how frustrating it is because these books <laughs> are out there and, and they're great. Like, you know, the kid who's going to read it and be so mm-hmm. touched and moved by it. And yet it's so hard to articulate like, I hear your frustration that you can't find them, but they are there and right. it's a bigger issue than, you know, they aren't there. It's they're right. there, but how are we talking about them? Right. And I can't guide you to this one bookshelf or send you to this mm-hmm. one part. Um, no, bring me 10 books and I will right. go through them and we'll talk about what you're ready for and what you're looking for, you know, and that's hard. It, it's very hard. And I think too, and I say this a lot that we forget particularly this age group, they are the best self-censors. Yeah. If they're reading something and they aren't ready for it or aren't comfortable with it, they're going to put it down. Like mm-hmm. they're not going to forge through. They're not like some of us as adults who feel like we need to finish everything. They're going to be like, all right, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going to go outside and play soccer. And it's like, right. it's fine. You know? right. right. There are enough demands on their attention these days. They're going to stick with a book that's right for them. Exactly. And if, if it's not, maybe they'll come back to it in a couple of years. Maybe they won't. And that's okay. Like they, the beauty of having so many options is that there are options out there. Right. Right. I remember when Nova Red and Suma's debut came out, Danny Noir, and I was teaching at that point and my class gobbled that up. I had to buy more than one copy and there was still a wait <laughs> list to read it. But the book ended up being aged up and re-released, mm-hmm. right? As YA because it didn't find its audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has always felt so tragic to me because the kids in that age range that needed to read it loved it, right. but it didn't find the wider success because it couldn't find those readers on a bigger scale. And I think too, part of it comes back to what we sort of started with in this idea of what is high stakes and what mm-hmm. is easy to sell on a single like snappy you know, pitch line versus Mm -hmm. so many of these stories for this age group, whatever genre they're in, are very internal stories. And Mm -hmm. they're like, you can't sell them on a sexy label. And (laughs) I think that that means that they get so lost. Yeah, that's very true. But I'm so glad that Rain is not my Indian name is getting this beautiful new cover and getting this chance at a whole other life. Because I think 
I think it came out when it should have come out, but I think that the idea of re-releasing it and giving it a little bit of a new look and then Mm -hmm. as the author wrote in her author's note, it got some updates, but still feels so timeless. And I think it's going to hit the right readers now and hopefully more and more of the people who have the influence to get these books to that age range are waking up to like, okay, this is, you know, this book is going to get some attention and it should. And hopefully that gets it into the right hands. It makes me hopeful. It makes me really hopeful about the books they're choosing to re-release and that hopefully this time around it it gets that bump. And I hope that, you know, if we were to do a follow-up, you know, podcast in six months or a year, that if I did that Google search the night before, that the things that came up would be different, you know, yes. that they would be lists with actual recommendations. Right. And this would be one like right at the top because, woof, yeah, it, you know, it packs so much. And yet, like, man, it hit me hard. It did. Absolutely. So, well, thank you so much for joining me on this episode today to talk about your books, to talk about Rain is Not My Indian Name, to talk about younger YA because I think it's you know there's so much we could have talked about that we didn't but I think and hope that some of the listeners who have been so eager to hear more about these think about what is out there and what can be perfect for that age range as always thank you to today's sponsor for making the show possible you can follow me Kelly Jensen on Instagram at hey Kelly Jensen and Tiffany where can people follow you and if you want to remind people of your recent books I am at Tiffany Schmidt, S-C-H-M-I-D-T, on both Instagram and Twitter, so you can find me in those places. Thank you so much for having me today. This has been a pleasure. Obviously, this is a topic very near and dear to my house, uh, my house, my heart. <laughs> and your house. I mean, yeah, in my house. It's, it's everywhere. Um, <laughs> so my most recent is Get a Clue in the Bookish Boyfriend series, and my next is actually Fall 2021. It's called I'm Dreaming of a Wyatt Christmas. And it's if <laughs> Babysitter's Club met, you know, Dance Academy or Center Stage by way of a Hallmark Christmas movie. Aww. And again, that 14-year-old freshman protagonist, and I'm very excited for it. The cover is adorable. And by the time this comes out, it will have just dropped. So you can all go see it. Oh, I can't wait. And I love the title. It's just so Thank clever. You. So clever. Thank you to Jen Zink, our wonderful audio editor, for making Heyway sound great. And tune in for next week at the main podcast. And until then, happy reading. Thank you again, Tiffany. Thank you.